If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. These robots help prevent crimes. Before I had a mobile phone in my pocket, what was I doing with that time? Virtual reality, I've seen work that's being done for PTSD. And the storytelling becomes really important. And that storytelling is at the heart of Donna Laughlin's work. Donna is the founder and president of San Jose-based public relations agency LMGPR. With a background in journalism, Donna specializes in working with futurists and innovators. And she explores the why behind the emerging technologies they've created, both through her award-winning PR company and through her podcast, which is entitled Before It Happened. Donna, you say on your LinkedIn as an introduction that you work with visionaries on changing the future. Where does that story start for you? How did you discover that passion? You know, it started way back. I go in a time capsule all the way to the time when I was trolling behind my father and doing all what I call his popular mechanics, popular science, you know, type of activities from being at the airport, tinkering on his plane or in the garage, creating something or me dragging him to the good old Tandy Radio Shack where I would want to get bits and pieces of things. I didn't really grow up in the Lego generation. It was a little more like real parts, hardware store, automotive, airplane parts, things like that. And just kind of learned to kind of tinker around behind my dad and apply to a lot of science. And it wasn't really innovation, but I kind of had my own STEM program going, I'd say. What was one of the absolute coolest things you got to make as you were working with your dad? A robot. Oh, tell me about the robot, please. Yeah. We made a robot and the robot had basically one task to do. And the task was something that we thought would be really fun, which is to walk a short distance and serve a bowl of popcorn because we thought, well, on movie night, wouldn't that be great if we had actually had somebody that would not miss the movie, not skip a step and deliver popcorn. So we spent quite a bit of time. That was a science fair project, which I will say I won the science fair. Also submitted it to National Geographic contest. Got some accolades for that, and I got a camera as a prize for that particular National Geographic. And then that's when I started getting a little more interested in the editorial part of things, such as wow, there's a story, and the story can actually go to print. And I, I was on a couple of radio shows too, but I was like ten or eleven. But my family also owned a series of newspapers. And the community papers. There were more than 40 papers within the publishing company, which my father and his brothers owned. So I was a little bit of a Nancy Drew going around town and interviewing local shopkeepers. But if there was anything that was a little more mechanical, a little more science-driven, those are the stories that I would go out with. And eventually, by the time I was 12, I was published. And that's kind of where my whole career began. Fast forward to today with a background as a journalist. I also found it interesting that you trained as a performance race car driver, according to your LinkedIn, and celebrating 20 years of your PR firm. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the race car. Well, that's another contribution from my father. He said, you want to learn to drive and you need to learn to drive safely. So he took me to Laguna Seca, which is 
now called WeatherTech down in Monterey County and enrolled me in a basically a track racing you know series it was six weekends and i learned my first car i mean i went from basically a tractor to a plane to now a race car and i hadn't even driven on the road so at 16 i got my race car license and then a few years later plus 10 years i ended up going to a different race car school and driving formula 1 and had a blast with it, but it's a very expensive sport. So I kind of retired that for bicycles and did a little bit of motorcycles, but all of that was, you know, just part of the, part of the journey. What an amazing adventure. And it sounds like by the time you were in your twenties, you'd done the radio, you'd been in magazines, you had been racing and bicycle racing. Well, yeah. Well, that kind of drove me to study journalism in college, all that accumulation of things, a curiosity and discovery And, you know, at the time, you know, there were, when you look in the broadcast news media, predominantly was mostly men that were leading the nightly news. And so I wanted to make a difference in a different way. So a woman in the newsroom was still a little bit of anomaly. You know, it was like you were the editorial assistant or you were maybe a features editor and something a little lighter than business economics or even science and tech. So my mother instilled in me another very important skill, which was typing. And I remember having conversations where I said, I don't want to learn to type. I don't want to be a secretary. I don't want to be the word administrative assistant didn't even exist yet. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to learn to type, then I'm going to learn to be the fastest typer because I'm going to type myself right outside the newsroom, which is exactly what I did. And because I could type 150, 160 words a minute, I was very useful in the newsroom, but that also meant when I did my first editorial internships that I could actually edit and I can change things. And there I was all of 19 years of age working at the Washington Post with an internship and the only woman in the editorial room and the only female intern at the time. I think there were six of us, but I was only female intern. And I made some edits and I got called in and I thought I was going to be told to pack up my box and move on out to the administrative editorial pool. I was actually told the opposite. I was told that I was given an assignment and I had less than two hours to kind of report back. So taking that kind of own personal go the distance risk, risk challenge reward moment paid off. Take me with you in your imagination on that assignment. You've got two hours to do this thing. You're under the gun. What happens? Well, it was a day that was pretty significant. There was a plane crash. A Boeing had crashed. And so one of the, the things I needed to do was get all the facts. So I had, you know, I had to call the FAA. I had to call the regional airports, get you know expert witnesses, expert, just expert anybody in aviation I get a hold of. Obviously, I couldn't go to the scene because the scene of you know the incident was not in the state, but I had to gather anybody regionally and then nationally that would make sense to tell this story. So obviously, I grew up in the shadows of an airport flying with my father and his 172 and other little planes. And that information actually came in really handy because I understood aviation. I understand aviation. I still fly. And the content, you know, knew what questions to ask. So within probably 45 minutes, I had all the information that I needed 
to go back to say, you know, based on the professional information that I received, could this accident have been prevented, right? And was it marginal error or was it purely weather? And everything was kind of pointing to the fact that it was, although the black box hadn't been recovered or anything, that weather was probably, weather can be your best friend, it could be your worst enemy. And one of the things my father always taught me was, as a pilot, you're only as good as the last flight. So if you have a fair weather flight, you're a great pilot. But if you hit, you know, weather conditions in which you can't navigate and you have to use instrument ratings in the case of a commercial airlines are very schooled and planes are far more automated the same way race cars are now, the human error, you know, it has to be factored in as well. So I was really instinctively able to pull all everything report it back to the managing editor who then paired me with a senior editor to write the story. Did you wind up on the front page? It wasn't a front page story. It was a series of three days of stories. And ultimately the writer that I was working with, you know, became a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. And my name wasn't even in the story. I just contributed to it, but it certainly gave me the confidence to continue to keep it going, go back to you know finish school because that was an internship and gave me the confidence because I did have a couple of editors that said, I wouldn't have a career as a reporter, not editors, but professors. And I thought, well, but I'm doing it professionally and they're not telling me that. And I would go back to school and it's like the military. You're just kind of told, you know, that certain things so that it makes you stronger and what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And so I just pursued it. And by the time I graduated, I actually had three internships under my belt, the Washington Post, Reuters, and then briefly at the BBC. Wow. What was your journey like from there, from graduating as a journalist with all these credentials to what you're doing today, 20 years later, after a highly successful career with your own PR firm that serves tech innovators? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I never thought I would own my own business. I thought I was going to be that continuous diehard Nancy Drew investigative you know, reporter. I ended up coming back to California after I caught my tour duty in Chicago and New York and DC and London and went to UC Berkeley and got my master's degree. And it is a professional program. It's a great program. And in the shadows of the Silicon Valley and the tech sector, there's really no escape. And as much as I'm a California girl and I love California, I really didn't want to be part of the tech scene at all. But like a magnet, I kept getting pulled into it. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, I got to have the instincts for this because all the tech and science that I had been exposed to. Now, if I had known better, I might have gotten an electrical engineering degree or something in computer science or data programming languages, and then a minor in journalism or something. But that really wasn't it's not necessarily because I've just learned from so many people. But when I entered the, you know, meant the transition from editorial to the PR world, it was really a, a happy accident. That typing that I talked about became very valuable. I was doing a story and I got pulled in for an interview with a company, a tech company. And the head of marketing basically sought me out to hire me to come be on her team. And we had a little bit of a giggle because she says, well, you know, my husband's a reporter and you can stay a reporter. And let me ask you what your salary is. Now, my parents always told me, you never, there's a couple of things you never ask your political beliefs, your religion and your salary and probably your social security number to see. And I kind of keep things private. And here she was asking me my salary. And I remember going, well, I don't know if I want to tell her. And 
I didn't want to make it up. So I told her the truth and she laughed and she says, oh my goodness. She says, we can definitely do better than that. And next thing I know, I'm in a position, in a corporate position, doing a lot of writing and public relations. And my salary was 3X what I was making as a reporter. My father said, take it, don't look back. And he was right. And let's say it was kind of a happy accident. And that's when I discovered my editorial instincts, my writing, communications, my curiosity. On the other side of the world, as they say in editorial, the PR people, the ones that pitch the stories all day long. And then you have the, you know, the editors who write. It was always a little bit of a friendly, you know, divided border there. But I found that everybody I was working with was a former reporter of some sorts. Whoa. And that's amazing. It's always yeah. been shocking to me how little people of arts and letters will make for putting their hearts and souls into what they do. So exciting. Exactly. The salary boost. That's fantastic. 20 years down the road, you have your highly successful PR firm and your LinkedIn says that you are a STEM advocate. I'd love to talk with you, not about STEM, but about STEAM and some of these stories behind the best educational technology you've been promoting. What have you seen that would really wow anyone who's listening who's a teacher? You know, I think today's digital world, we have so much access to content and it's being able to filter and find the right content. So I think podcasts like this and science and NPR podcasts, and there's NASA podcast and a lot of even, you know, podcasts that are just designed for women in STEM. I think all these become good extended classroom, you know, opportunities outside of the Zoom world that so many people are familiar with. But I think a good old fashioned trip to the library also is something that needs to be in the curriculum is nothing really replaces the textural touch of paper and turning a page and being able to kind of discover and delve into different subjects. So when I was a kid, my father and I had a ritual and he called me Rocky and he'd say, Rocky, let's go to the library. And I knew what that meant. And I would get a big stack of books that was supposed to last me for the whole week, but it typically didn't last me past Sunday. And I would I would always challenge myself to get topics that I didn't know anything about. And so I've learned, and I still do this as public, I'm a sponge. So I work with a lot of tech, early emerging tech. So I was working in robotics and artificial intelligence and autonomous before they became mainstream or in discussions with companies like you know Tesla, as an example. And I've learned that because I was just a sponge. I still go, I go to car shows, I go to tech shows, I go to STEM fairs, I worked with a robotics company and one of their programs was STEM education in the classroom. And STEAM is adding the applied arts, I think is so important because typically in the tech industry, you know, your marketing people and your creative people are separate from your engineering people. And when they come together, I think the communication sometimes isn't as smooth as it could be. So I think understanding each other's roles and knowing that applied sciences and marketing, communications, public relations isn't an exact science as we know. But I think when when they're actually more integrated, communication and engagement and enlightenment starts happening within the workforce. And I've seen that a lot. So oftentimes I'm working directly with the CTO and the founders. And sometimes it's two guys and a dog, you know, in a garage. Sometimes it's two guys and a cat because they can't afford a dog. And then sometimes it's a couple of women. Women are still outnumbered. And I'm not going to give any exact statistics as I'll probably mess it up. But I know that the percentage of women in, I think it's 
roughly about 28% are in technical and STEM-related fields. I think we need to encourage girls to take what I call hard math and sciences and knowing that we can contribute in great ways. I was always taking the AP classes, the advanced classes, challenging myself. And I think one of the things that we should do with the younger generation and the next generation is, is encourage them not to get a sticker for everything you do, which was a you know has been a trend for a while now, but challenge yourself. And if you get a C in a really hard class, that's probably better than easing through a class that you don't need to do much studying, you know, and being challenged with. I totally agree. It's not about get the A. It's about what can you do with what you learn once you're finished with the class. Yeah. If you had to teach a class right now with girls who, let's say, have more of an art slant and you want to get them excited about science, what would you teach them? Well, you know, one of the things that's great about art, and I love art, and I took a lot of art history, and I even worked at the Uffizi Museum in Florence one summer, is that there is a lot of synergy. The geometrics, if you look at a Picasso painting, it's very geometrical. There's a lot of math and calculations that are within the art that maybe he wasn't doing specifically, but if you look at the, the paintings and the art, there is. If you look at the materials in which artists use, the chemical compounds of whether it's clay or it's bronze or it's in canvas or it's in linen. Recently, I interviewed an artist who's using robots to help her paint. And I thought that's so wonderful that she's integrated tech and art together because they belong together. And in order to understand nature and to understand the connection between humans and nature, but between humans and technology, the art, the natural art of nature, as well as emulating, you know, anything that is, you know, created in fine art. So I don't think this should be separated. I looked at my own kids growing up and they're young adults, but when they were little, my daughter would get very squirmy when I take her to the art museum, but she loved going to the hands-on science, you know, museums. And my son was the opposite. He really loves fine art and he liked, you know, anything that had to do with beauty. And I thought, how am I going to do this? Because I wanted them to be exposed to both. So we would spend half our morning going to the art museum and I would look for kinetic or things that my daughter would be interested in. Kinetic sculpture, like an Alexander Caldermobile, you know, something that she would be fascinated with, but she could care less about looking at other things. Monet would not interest her as all as an example. My son on the other hand would be just enamored with Monet and you could care less about the kinetic stuff. So then we would go to the science museum. This was in San Francisco mostly. They also had gone to New York and other museums in Seattle and different places that I would travel and we would flip. And so my daughter would look for things that were, you know, she would point out, oh, this is similar to the art museum. You know, this is robots and the robots were painted, you know, with flowers and they were painted very beautifully. And then I think the connection came applying it, you know, in a different application made that connection. For me, math was always difficult, but flying and learning to fly and learning to do instrument readings and to be able to plan a flight gave it purpose. Cooking as an example, a lot of times girls were encouraged to take home economics and then they took that out. And I thought, well, when in summer school, I took those types of things and I was really young, but I liked it because it made math fun. And I think that's one of the things is that we often take the fun factor out of science. And sometimes we take the fun factor out of art and we need to put the fun back in. 
let's go on with that fun factor idea with some of the other technologies you're seeing. And we mustn't forget to do a shameless plug for your podcast. Let's just do that right now before it happened. And I believe the artist of whom you're speaking, I'm never going to say her name right, Agneska, is that right? She's from Europe and she paints robots. I want to say that she paints them like Rembrandt did. I might be mistaken about that. Yeah, really fascinating story. So my podcast, it really focuses around visionaries and the future they imagine. And so within that scope, I have a lot of innovators and a lot of science. So we get into everything from food science to agriculture, sustainability, to the human connection with technology. And that particular story you described, she uses programmable robots to help her paint, but she also paints portraits of the robots. And so there's this really nice two-way connection. And she was a fine arts painter that just kind of had a happy accident in tech. And I just think her story is beautiful. I've also had some other amazing women on the show, the inventor of the sports bra. I've had women from you know other countries that came to the United States to make a difference because they didn't have those opportunities in the countries that they were from. And I showcase a lot of equally great men that are creating, you know, really change agents and pushing things forward. So sustainable farming, how do we get there? I have Tyler Florence, who's a very famous chef. He talks about the waste, you know, food, like we got to use it. And the sensibilities that are required to harvest and grow and be responsible for our crops and the earth. And I take it to the next level with somebody like Carla Madavi. And we're talking about, you know, not using Roundup in our food, in the future of food, all the way to synthetic cheeses and and replacing animals in the food supply chains for the pet food market. So I get into a lot of really deep subjects, and most of it is because I still remain deeply curious, and I have these opportunities to just meet some great people. Some are clients, many are not, a great portion are not, but I come across stories I read all the time. And just this week, I you know pulled an article and I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And I contacted the person that it was about. And so one of my upcoming issues is going to be you know, with this company that I literally just pulled the story out of a magazine and a real hard copy magazine, not a digital magazine. <laughs> the old school magazine like you and I should come home with stacks up underneath our chins from the library. Oh, yeah. National Geographic's, you know, basement full of them. <laughs> same here beforeithappened.com i believe is the link for your podcast it's the beforeithappened.com or instagram the before it happened show going back to what you were saying before you said purpose you said fun which are the keys to steam i think relating it to someone's world what are you seeing in terms of a robot that you can talk about right now that maybe our audience of educators and makers might like to know more about among the clients that you're serving well, I've seen so many fascinating robots, agriculture robots, autonomous and artificial intelligence robotics within the agriculture industry, within the manufacturing. You know, we've seen we've seen the pizza delivery robots. I personally work with crime fighting robots, which is my night scope. And these robots basically help to serve and protect and help prevent crimes. And so if you think about the rental, you know, by the hour security guard services. They're not necessarily highly trained. It's not the easiest job. I don't think I could do it, but to assist them in law enforcement, whether it's public or private campuses, these robots are basically reporting to duty and 
being able to, you know, scan and serve and monitor activity. And so they're looking for stolen cars and and malicious activity or vandalism, things like that that can be reported. And it's hard evidence that then is you know reported, you know, to the, the authorities. Also work, you know, with the window washing robot, which is basically a robot arm that now helps window washers is a decades old job. Requires no training to go up a scaffold on the side of a building and being dropped. You think of skyscrapers and you're dropping down below and you're washing windows. We've all seen window washers on the side and think, wow, that's miraculous. It's hot, it's dirty, and it's dangerous. And so a company called Skyline Robotics is actually automating the labor force. It doesn't replace the window washer. The window washer is still with new skills, can learn to monitor and manage the robot doing its task. So it's automating and augmenting the opportunity. So I always say, everyone's looking waist high at their phone. Now look up, because when you look up, particularly in New York City, you'll see these window washing robots cleaning the windows of the world. And we're talking skyscrapers. So that's pretty cool. I see a lot, I live in the Silicon Valley and I see a lot of the pizza delivery robots and the the kind of the task robots. I think they're cute and kind of fun. I'm always a little concerned. I'm going to hit one if I'm, (laughs) what if it doesn't get across the street fast enough? (laughs) But right now, artificial intelligence, robotics, autonomous vehicles, trucking, things that are related to supply chain and efficiency are mostly the things that I'm seeing in robotics. Wow. It occurs to me to wonder if you're going to show your kids how to make a robot that delivers popcorn, just as your dad showed you. You know, I wish I had those photos. I think it's probably on some super eight video wow factor, you know, that's in the garage. You know, I worked with my kids on a lot of science type things growing up, both in scouts as well in in school. There was a great program called the Young Rembrandts, which was a combination of art and science and STEAM. For kids after school, it was an extracurriculum program, and it was wonderful. I also took my kids a lot to the Tech Museum of Innovation, which is the in Silicon Valley and in San Francisco, the Academy of Arts and Sciences. I mean, I think the most important thing is the wonderment in kids if they're exposed and they have access. It's when they don't have access and they're not exposed. And I think, you know, put the phone down. <laughs> you know, the mobile devices are great, but the great outdoors and being able to discover, I remember as a kid camping, I'm not a camper now, but I do appreciate the fact that I would go camping to national parks and I would be able to hike and smell and touch and experience and see, you know, different things in nature. And if you never smelled a pine tree or a redwood tree, then how, when you're reading a book, how does one know? And that's how I look at things. My next part of what I'm going to be doing is writing a book. I've started it. It takes a huge dedication. So the podcast preceded the book, but a hint is that the book will not be an exact a replica of the podcast, but it is a book that is designed to help people who are just out of college or they're starting their business and bringing the product to market, give them the tools to be able to tell their authentic narrative and their story. And the storytelling becomes really important. As for a timeline and when we can expect that book. My book editor would <laughs> say tomorrow and it's like, oh, it's not tomorrow. <laughs> 2023. <laughs> and I think if I were to give any child an essay assignment, 
and say a little older, maybe, you know, somewhere maybe between fifth and eighth grade is to write your authentic narrative. Oftentimes kids don't write enough. And I think when it comes to college interest exams, all of a sudden you have to write this paper about you. And I actually have my first book report called All About Me. (laughs) I was eight years old when I wrote it and I read it and I found it in the garage recently cleaning and I had to read it. And I thought, wow, at eight, I actually had a kind of a pretty good vision of what it is I wanted to do, where I was going to go. And I kind of exceeded it. So I think it's really important for us to encourage kids, not just to see and to hear, but to write things down. And I think it's a shame that cursive is going away as an art form, because I think it's not just, it is artistic, but it also is, you know, part of our communication and our oral and written dialogue, I think is getting lost in some regards. In a lot of ways, we are losing some of our communication. I'll hear people misuse English. They'll say things like it was broadcasted as opposed to broadcast. It seems like there's something we have to do in order to fight back against losing our language entirely and our communication skills. When you talk about kids and the fact that we're really kind of all that kid, we're that kid looking at, whoa, that's amazing. What has absolutely awed you recently, let's say in the last six months or so, with some of the emerging tech that you're covering? You know, I'm gearing up for CES 2023, which is the big consumer electronic show. And so I get excited to see what's coming out in the holiday rush. We're getting, you know, in that holiday rush window where as consumers, we start seeing, you know, things that to buy for Christmas or for the holidays. And I haven't seen a lot, but what I saw recently blew my mind is a company called Carbon Mobile. And they have figured out a way to make a smartphone using really smart, natural engineering, sustainable phone, and think using nature versus plastic. And so it is, and I've very simplified it for the audience, but I think that's pretty phenomenal that now I can actually not to worry about my 5G phone, you know, killing my hearing, my brainwaves and all these things that we're, we need to think about, but how do we dispose? How are we going to, are we just going to continue to populate landfill or, you know, everything from the plastic generation, which I think I'm part of the plastic generation. And, you know, we talk about, you know, straws and turtles and in California, we have a goal. It's not quite a mandate, but it is, I guess it's a mandate and a goal by 2030, no more gasoline cars will be sold, but there's still a huge problem with how are we going to dispose? So my I look for things that are going to be recyclable or upcycled, or if you look at consumer electronics and you go into a big box store, whether it be a Best Buy or Target, I'm now beginning to see those words, sustainable, recycled, upcycled. So I think as consumers, holiday gift buying or ongoing buying, we should be more conscious in making smart decisions of not just what's in my pocket. I mean, I think about before I had a mobile phone in my pocket, what was I doing with that time? I was probably reading a lot more. I was probably making a lot more phone calls with the landline and probably taking a lot more walks. And I think, you know, CES 2023, the theme is sustainability. Agriculture is a big market segment that they're focusing on. But I think as consumers, 
we need to take ownership and start asking. And if not, we don't see drive the vendors and the consumer personal electronics and other market industries to be more responsible because the landfill problem is vast. Lithium batteries, we haven't really solved that problem. Where are these large electric batteries for cars and trucks going to be going? Where are they going to be upcycled? So a lot of companies have solutions and plans to upcycle and to refurbish and to renew. And I think that's great. So whether it's a car, a motorcycle, a new phone, or a digital child's toy, just make sure it doesn't end up in the landfill. Seriously, by the time your son and daughter have their careers, hopefully we'll have a much more sustainable world. That is a sobering question. What was I doing before I had my phone that I was looking at all the time? And when you said that, I thought, well, I wrote and I made things and I talked to people, which yeah. kind of tend not to do as much. I think I was thinner. Exactly. <laughs> no, I think I was too. <laughs> we haven't said a word yet about either augmented reality or wearables. Before we have to wrap up, what have been some of the trends in these areas that have really wowed you in the STEM or STEAM area? Yeah, augmented reality, I've actually played a little bit in the gaming arena. But what fascinated even more is a company called Realware. Andy Lowry, he's also featured on my podcast. He had created a, a series was with a few companies and creating a, you know a kind of a heads up display reality format. But Railware basically is a headset for the industrial industry. Think of the and I talked about window washing, but tired and dirty jobs such as you know telephone power lines or oil rigs or being out at sea in the military submarine your hand. And in fact, he was a submarine officer. And so you need to have your hands free, right? So it was really about hands free and intelligence. So that's a great application for something. A lot of people just think, oh, it's for video gaming and virtual reality. But I think when you can apply it to something that's really meaningful, that's important. The other thing I think is in medical research of seeing how it's being used for medical and for even in areas of like Alzheimer's. When technologies can be applied to that, I think that's fascinating. Virtual reality, I think, is just a different application of that. If you know, I think the fun fantasy things that a lot of people like to do. I've seen work that is being done in, you know, for PTSD using that or for anxiety. And that to me is pretty fascinating. Sounds like you're talking about Skip Rizzo. He has that incredible lab at USC. It was mind-blowing to me to find out all these applications. And still today, a lot of people think that virtual reality is simply for gaming, and it's not. There's so much more to it. It's amazing. Well, and to think about there's new careers that exist as a result. ESG is a market that is an emerging market that I think is fascinating. So it's the environmental, social, and governance aspect that a lot of businesses are taking responsibility for. And there's a whole generation of millennials who are investing and looking to work for companies that have a conscience. So companies that are more equity and equality, you know, and inclusion, companies that are making smart products and, and earth friendly, companies that are more women hires. I mean, I Nightscope, I, I mentioned they're 100% of the board of women. So that's a company I want to invest in because that's a really cool progressive company. And I think that's the other component that people should look at is. In order to protect and preserve the future, what do we invest? And there's a great app called Impact by Interactive Brokers. It's a very large publicly traded company, but they've created 
an app that basically has 13 different values in which you can invest in companies and products. So if you want to save the turtles, there's probably something there. If you want to save the, you know, the rainforest, there's something there. And I think that's great because you can teach kids at a very young age how to invest. Impact would be something definitely to check out. Your mom counseled you to type and it served you well. What do you counsel your kids to learn for job skills for the future so that when they want to work for ESG companies, they're the top performers? That's interesting. I have one child that wants to save the world and do very hands-on sociology, you know, type of give backs. Another child wants, you know, basically saving the next designer cell. So we have quite lively discussions over the years, but I think one of the things that they're both very conscious in is making smart decisions and purchases, buying quality goods instead of buying fast fashion, things that are going to end up in landmills. Growing, we always had a garden at home, growing and having something organic out of our own backyard and being able to enjoy, whether it's a piece of fruit or it's herbs, you know, from the herbal garden or, you know, cucumbers, zucchini, there was always a sense of pleasure and joy, something homegrown on the table and time. You can't get back time. And so that's one of the things I think is really important. In the pandemic, kids were affected very heavily by not having that engagement, not being in the classroom, not going out and playing and those things. I noticed with my own daughter being in college that that lack of stimulation definitely affected her and the maze because she'll graduate from college next year, stayed on track, but it wasn't easy. And I think if we can help our kids thrive and give them access and being able to, they're going to make dumb decisions <laughs> along the way. Wow. And I always told my kids be smart and safe, especially in the digital world. I had worked with a lot of cybersecurity companies and know a lot about parental controls. And one time when my son was, in his early teens, he dismantled the parental controls by dialing 911, tried to outsmart me. And I at this alert that the digital controls had been disabled. And I called the company to find out how it got disabled. And he says, well, you know, this particular number had a 911. And so, of course, I called to see if he's okay. And he says, why? Yeah, why wouldn't I be? And I says, well, because I got a 911 for this phone. And there was, you know, somebody at school had shared that you can actually disable the parental controls by dialing 911. So know what your kids are doing, know who their friends are, some common sense there, right? And monitor the digital world. The kids are not entitled to have full digital rights. I think as parents, we still need to be, you know, I want to say the administrative justice and in, in policing <laughs> of these things, it is our parental rights to do so. Seriously, how long did it take you to let your son back out of his room or whatever punishment you gave him for that 911? Yeah, it was probably a good week of, of, of what I call what I call reflective moments. <laughs> we also talked about some of the innovations Donna has seen in wearable technology. Wearables is a great category because you know I personally I like jewelry and I always have my phone with me. I don't consider it you know a wearable, but hey, it's a wearable because it's in my pocket. But there's a lot of smart technology. I worked a couple of years ago with a company called Apollo, and they've actually created a wearable that helps manage anxiety and for people with PTSD and people who are trying to get off prescriptive drugs and to use these 
you know, the Apollo basically is a way to monitor kind of your pulse and manage and create nice, think of almost like a massage, a little fingertip touch on your wrist or on your ankle. That's fascinating to me that we can actually help people, you know, in wellness to be able to use a wearable that way. I've worked with companies that have created wearables that are designed for children who are autistic, who have seizures, but not calling out the attention that they have these medical conditions because it just looks like a watch. It doesn't look like, you know, something that is going to intimidate or single them out. So those wearables I think are really cool. There's a lot of things in fitness and health that, you know, either go around the waist or go on the wrist or on the arm. And I think those wearables make our mobile phone a little more, I'm going to say, extend the capabilities of our phone. So it's not just digital content, but it's meaningful content and tracking. I personally like my my Apple smart watch because it is a way that I can communicate with, you know, people, you know, my team, but also just people, my personal life. And it's nice to get, you know, a little heart pulse or a thank you, you know, sent to you, you know, throughout the day. And it's not completely disruptive because it's kind of fun. But those are the things that baby monitoring capabilities, things that are helping us become just better humans and be able to keep us calm and relaxed and maybe reconnect. I love those types of wearables. What's one of your absolute favorite ways in addition that we keep humanity at the core of technology? Mm, That's a big question. I saw something just this last week and I thought it was fascinating. It was Queen Elizabeth II just passed. Mm -hmm. And there was a video going around with her and, and Prince and Prince Royale. And it was Anne and the Queen getting on Zoom for the first time. And it was actually, and I can't even tell you where I saw it, but it was so delightful because she was learning to use a new communications platform in her 90s. And I thought if the Queen of England could get on Zoom and connect and to be able to use it as a medium for potential speeches or meetings, I thought, wow, where am I going to be when I turn 96? Because that's a goal. Where am I going to be? And what's it going to look like? Is it going to be avatar world? Is it going to be on a different planet? Is it, I'm going to be flying around on my plane? And, you know, what, where? And so I was like, I don't know, imagine the possibilities. There's a signature question I usually ask for my podcast, which you've more or less answered, but I will ask it anyway. If people could only get one thing from you about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you like them to take away from your work? Wow. You know, I think that, It says constantly be a seeker, looking for knowledge, whether it's knowledge from looking back, you know, to your childhood. I take clients through a discovery process. Oftentimes they present to me this cool product and and it's like, you know, product of the box and there's like a magic show and they show me the product. That's great. Sometimes it's a better version, you know, of something that's already exists. Other times it's like the first of its kind. But I always have to take them back to why, and this is the purpose of my show, the moment before it happened, why did they decide to create it and design it and bring it to market to begin with? Because that DNA, that moment in time kind of dictates the flow of everything else. And I think that organic moment is really interesting to me. And it's just like, well, 
if you're an opera singer, then why did you become an opera singer? It takes a lot of training to be an opera singer, a lot of discipline. But there must be some, there's few opera singers in the world that are highly, you know, trained and make a living doing it. And so it's the same conversation with an engineer or an innovator or a scientist. Like, why did you decide to like mortgage your house and, you know, downsize and take the risk, right? When I started my business, I had friends that thought I was absolutely crazy. I had a really nice corporate job with a really nice salary. And I ended up going to a competing company. And within six weeks, they lost their funding. I was in a situation going out with a nice severance package and going into sitting in my car. And I thought, who am I going to call? So I called three people, a venture capitalist that I had worked with, my former employee who I had trained my team members so well that he had already taken over my job, and then a reporter that I had worked with. And without thinking, I drove to the local business license office. I had no idea, but something told me to drive to get a business license. And within 24 hours, I had leads and contacts from those three phone calls. I call my lifeline. <laughs> Those three all procured. My former employer became a client, my first client. The editor referred me to two companies who needed some narrative storytelling positioning. And the third one actually ended up coming to work for me. So that's how I started my business. It was a happy accident. But I think it's what you do next and how you process is so important. So when it comes to Innovation, science, and technology, and all things STEAM, I think we can be selective of the things that are important to us. I really love aerospace and aviation and science. And those are things that are just kind of personal passions for me. But I've learned to really explore and love food science and the supply chain and how ESG and blockchain factor into those markets is fascinating. The evolution and the speed of light that these markets are evolving and changing is if we blink, we might miss it. So we used to have shows, a lot more science and STEM type shows. You and I were growing up, they were, you know, film strips and (laughs) movies of the TV. So I think encouraging kids, next generation to go online and look at the Discovery Channel, look at National Geographic, it still exists. Looking at science shows, NPR has some great Science Friday episodes and things like that. Your podcast, my podcast, you know, the curiosity factor is evidence. But I think, you know, explore. We can all be explorers. Donna, thank you for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You and I have been listening to Donna Laughlin, founder and president of award-winning public relations agency LMGPR. LMGPR specializes in working with creators of B2B and consumer technology. Get a look at these cool innovations on their website, lmgpr.com. And you can check out Donna's stories about the why behind these innovations on her podcast, Before It Happened. You'll find her show on beforeithappened.com. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. 
and you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.